morning, everyone. It's time for a class. Uh, it really is a good morning because I got a little loaf of bread from the third and fourth graders. It's very cute. Okay, so we are in Esther chapter 4 this morning. Um, very excited. Uh, to go into this, uh, we're starting to, the story's starting to pick up, um, it's not just exposition anymore, um, and uh, maybe some of you thought uh, the exposition part was kind of boring, but we're, we're getting to the, the meat of the story, and really I think Esther um, chapter 4 uh, is, I, I, I think, in my opinion, my humble opinion, I think Esther 4 is, uh, it does contain the main idea uh, of the story. You know, many will say that the the only purpose Esther serves is, you know, the background for the Feast of Purim. And while that is an important part, uh, I think the larger and the more significant message of the book is contained in 4, uh, and Esther and, and Mordecai's interaction regarding what they will do about Haman's plot. So, just to recap, uh, I, I won't go through, <laughs> go over chapter one and chapter two. We've done that many times now, so um, I'm sure you remember it. But in three, we saw Haman, right? This new character, and he is the new. Uh, I mean, he is the the antagonist of the story. Um, and, and the occasion was that uh, Mordecai did not bow to Haman, right? And we talked about why that is so and how that indicates, points to, right, Mordecai's identity as a Jew and what that means, right? We talked about how the fact that he made that conscious decision not to bow to Haman, uh, it points to uh, his identity as a Jew and what that means in regards to uh, Esther's the presence of God in the story of Esther, right? Though Esther does not name God explicitly, right? Uh, you can see God sprinkled throughout, and and one of these things that you can see God through in Esther is the choices that these people make uh, in relation to their identity, right? Why, as a Jew, did Mordecai choose not to bow down to Haman, right? And and we talked about how that. Uh, gives, gives us a glimpse into how God is sprinkled throughout Esther. And we'll see that again in chapter 4 uh, with something else. Um, but again, uh, in chapter 3 we saw Haman. Uh, he is obviously not, not a good person. Uh, if King Ahasuerus was a just a bad ruler, um, I mean, he's not a great person either, I don't think, uh, from what we've seen in Esther so far. But if he's just a bad ruler, Haman is an evil one, right? He's just all the way on the other side, other end of the spectrum. Um, and because he has so much pride and ego, uh, he sees that uh, Mordecai does not bow down to him when it's the king's uh, command. Uh, he decides, hey, you know what? I'm going to make this uh, an occasion for me to commit genocide. And that's where we are now. Uh, they have found out that uh, Haman and the king has put out a decree 
um, and set a date for the extermination of the Jewish people. And we go to chapter 4. We got a lot to talk about today, so I'll just go ahead and read very quickly uh, all the way through chapter 4. It's not a long chapter, uh, so please follow along with me if you want. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, talking about what Haman did with the king, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai and to learn what this was and why it was. So at this point, Esther still doesn't know what's going on. Right? In verse 6, Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him. And the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go uh, to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the or all the all the king's servants and the people of the king's province know that if any man or woman goes to the king's inside the inner court without uh, being called, there is no or there is but one law to be put to death, except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Okay, so in chapter 4, as we uh, just mentioned, is the uh, interaction between Mordecai and Esther after learning about Haman's plot and Esther learning of this development from Mordecai um, with Hathak going back and forth between them as the messenger 
because, remember, Mordecai could not physically approach Esther because she was in, I guess, the inner part of the palace. Um, and Mordecai obviously is not allowed to go near the queen or the king's harem or anything like that. So um, they're still physically, you know, uh, apart because of this. Uh, but between the two, they talk about what to do and what this means for them. So I think the first thing that uh, we need to notice is uh, in the first section from verse 1 through 3, um, we get another glimpse of the Jewish identity. And this is something that we, I'm sure you're sick of hearing me say Jewish identity, Jewish identity. But it's important because the, this uh, this distinct identity that the Jews take on in this culture. Because the things that they do, uh, I mean, we even saw back in uh, chapter 1 what kind of culture that they're in. Um, and this is not their culture. This is not their land. They are uh, exiled, right? And, and they find themselves in this foreign land and this foreign culture. So their identity and the, what, what the author of Esther chooses to disclose about you know, their decisions, their choices based on their identity is very important because, again, it points not to just their Jewish identity, but what that implies about God, what they believe in God or about God, right? And that's how Esther talks about God, not by naming God or saying the Lord said this or the Lord did this, but through the actions and the decisions and the identity of the Jewish people in diaspora of the provinces of uh, the Persian Empire, and specifically Esther and Mordecai as the protagonists, the Jewish protagonists of the story. So in verses 1 through 3, we read of Mordecai's reaction to this news, to this development of uh, this Jewish extermination that is about to happen. Right? What does he do? Yes. Yes, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and and he is desolate, and he is making it known. He goes out into the city and cries a bitter cry, so much so that Esther the queen notices this and sends clothing to to clothe him, right? Something better to clothe him with. Um, and in fact, it, we even see that that he's not allowed in the king's gate, right? Because the king doesn't allow sackcloth, uh, um, and sackcloth, obviously, we know is is it's not a comfortable or, or uh, flashy or um, uh, it's not any any kind of clothes that you would want to wear on a regular day basis. Um, it's something special that the Jewish people wear, the Israelites wear in times of distress, and I think that's another glimpse of the Jewish identity. Right In verse 1, he tore, tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. And in every province, right in verse 3, there was great mourning and fasting and weeping and lamenting in sackcloth and ashes. So this kind of behavior as a response to any kind of tragedy or great sorrow is very indicative of the Jewish people, the Hebrew people. For example, think back to... Uh, Genesis chapter 37, when Jacob finds out about the fate of Joseph. Now, obviously Joseph, we know he is alive, but his brothers made it look like he was uh, mauled by some kind of predator, right? And when Jacob finds out and he sees that and he, he, he thinks that Joseph is dead, what does he do? 
deep mourning. Right? He puts on sackcloth and ashes. Uh, and and is, is apparently, apparently, you can see his distress and his grieving. Uh, Job, another example, when he was replying to his friend um, Eliphaz and, and his accusation of, of, uh, of Job, Right, um, and and Job is replying to that, and he is talking about his purity and and the purity of his heart, and how he has not wronged God, and and how he is repentive of anything that might have even happened without him uh, realizing. When he is talking about that in Job chapter sixteen, uh, verse fifteen, he rep- uh, he mentions sackcloth and ashes. So so this is a very very iconic. Uh, it's not just by accident, right? This is a very iconic and, and indicative uh, reaction and, and conduct for the Jewish people when there is tragedy, when there is great sorrow or grieving, or even in some examples when they just want to show that they are submitting to God, right? In, in times of repentance or something like that. Uh, Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. It's uncomfortable and it's not flattering. You yeah. know, it it's literally called sackcloth, right? Um, and we call it burn. Yeah. Right. And and you put ash on your head, and this indicates destitution. This indicates that you're not happy, <laughs> and and you are lo- you're. Probably uh, in a, a, a posture that is very low to the ground while doing this, um, and it is indicative of their uh, when the Jewish people do this, they are usually praying to God, right? And it's showing submission and it's showing uh, grief, but in a way that it relates to God. They're just—they're not just doing this because it's, just, it's their culture; it's because they're doing this to show physically where their heart is at the moment. So it, it's, a, it's, an outward, uh, it's an outward action of, that, that indicates an inward condition. Right? And it's, again, indicative of the Jewish identity. And there's fasting also, examples of fasting. David, uh, when he is praying on behalf of his child, uh, after committing sins with Bathsheba and, and killing Uriah, and 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 he is praying to God for his child in Second Samuel chapter 12, right? He does not eat; he is on the ground, and he is praying day after day. Uh, wind that back to Second uh, Samuel chapter 3, when David is mourning the death of Abner, right? He also does not eat; he he even says, uh, you know, so be it that, you know, uh, if, I, if I eat a piece of bread, right, while I'm mourning for this man's death, right, uh, and, and the people see that and they see his grief, they see his sorrow. And, and again, it's, a, it's an outward action, right, that shows an inward condition. There's also examples of non-Hebrew people uh, practicing fasting and wearing sackcloth and, and putting ashes on their head. Uh, if you think to Jonah, uh, when uh, the king of Nineveh hears 
Jonah's proclamation about God's judgment, what does he do? He commands all the kingdom or uh, all the the people of the city of Nineveh to uh, start fasting and and to pray prayer of repentance, and they put sackcloth and ashes, and they they repent in this manner. So that's an example of non-Hebrew people doing that. But again, it is pretty clear that Jews, in particular, right, conducted themselves in such a way in times of distress as their show of grief. And importantly, more importantly, their submission to God, right. So again. Uh, I keep bringing this up, and it is important because we have to see the author's intention in adding details like this, and or not adding details, but including details like this of the story of Esther. Right? His intention in purposefully emphasizing the Jewish identity in the story of Esther, right? because the author leaves out the name of God. Right? He doesn't. He never says God did this or God said this, uh, and in his story of Esther. When he records the story, he purposefully leaves out God's name. But his decision to do so is not to leave out God from the story, but to show us that there are other ways that God can work without us explicitly being told, spoon-fed in a way, that God is doing X, Y, and Z, or saying X, Y, and Z, but rather you can see God through the choices that people make the lives that people live, right? And the actions, the conduct, the, be, the behaviors of his people, the Jewish people. So, and I believe this is once again illustrated in the fact that the author is uh, specifically mentioning in verse 2, if you look at verse 2 of chapter 4, uh, that the king did not allow sackcloth in the, the king's gate, right? The king is obviously... Um, he has a dress code, and sackcloth is not one of them. Uh, if you're one of his officials and you're going to go into the king's gate, you've got to be dressed nicely. Uh, you've got to have a little splendor of yourself, it seems. There's no place for this kind of behavior where uh, people, where they're mourning, and they put on sackcloth and put ash on themselves, and they publicly mourn and grieve about a certain situation. There's nothing like that in the culture of Persia. And I think it's interesting that the author purposefully emphasized that. And it shows a contrast, right? Look back to, you know, think back to chapter 1 of Esther when the king is lavishing everyone with great feasts and, and he is showing these great splendors and his riches and, and showing off his power. And then you look to Mordecai, right, in this moment of grief. Grieving for his people. You know, he, he, I mean, he was in a position of some authority. Uh, if he was selfish enough, maybe he could have tried to get out of it. I don't know. Um, but in this moment, when he finds out that his people are in danger, what does he do? He grieves. He grieves for them. Not just for himself, but for his people. Uh, and, and he puts on sackcloth and ashes. It's not flattering, right? He looks destitute. And, and he does this even in public um, and as close as he can get to the king's gate. Uh, yes? Hmm. Um, maybe. I'm not... I'm, I'm not a I'm not an expert in in, in Jewish history and and you know their uh, what what people of antiquity did, uh, but they did they did wear it, and it 
like like it was mentioned, it's uncomfortable. Um, and right, it, it's it's prickly. Uh, it's it's um, when you say uh, it's not comfortable to wear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is a possibility. Yes. Um, so again, th- there's there are comparisons being made, right? Um, there's a sharp contrast, and and this where uh, Mordecai is not allowed to go into the king's gate in sackcloth in his time of mourning and, and grieving for his people and this tragedy that has uh, uh, arose. This is a sharp contrast from scenes like Nehemiah. Right, and the people of Israel fasting in sackcloth and, and ashes in Nehemiah chapter nine, verse one, right? They're doing it as a corporate group, right? These group of people, this great group of people, they're doing this together, right? Because that's their identity, right? And they're doing this with God in mind, right? Or, or thinking back to, um, when, when, uh, Hezekiah found out, uh, got the message, uh, from King I'm going to butcher this name, uh, Sennacherib, <laughs> uh, and, and his threat to Israel or Judah. In 2 Kings chapter 19, he does the same thing. The king of Israel does this, or the king of Judah does this, right, where he puts on sackcloth and ashes and, and, and goes into mourning in front of his subjects. In front of his people, so it, it, it's it's a sharp contrast, and you can tell that the author is trying to make a point here. They are living in a different culture. They are living in a culture that is, I mean, that's foreign to them. And this distinction, this contrast, uh, highlights the identity of the Jews. And when the identity of the Jews are highlighted in a story like this, where God is not mentioned, God shines brighter even though his name is not mentioned. So I think it's important that we notice these things um, because their identity is with God. It's not just with themselves. This culture, this, uh, the, these conducts did not just spring out of nowhere. It wasn't, uh, you know, they, they didn't just spontaneously think, oh, you know, I feel like putting, you know, this uncomfortable sackcloth on myself and putting ash on my, on my head and, 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 and getting on the ground and, and lamenting. Publicly, they didn't just think that up. They did that, and and they have been doing that throughout the history of of Israel because of their position in relation to God, right? In in times of distress. Any comments before we move on? Okay. So and then uh, moving on into verses uh, four through eleven. We read of Esther learning about the fate of the Jews, right? Uh, Haman's plan, and what all has uh, uh, what all has happened. Um, when Esther tried to send uh, close to Mordecai after learning of his lamenting, Mordecai obviously refuses. Uh, in his moment of mourning and grieving, Esther then inquires, "You know, why are you doing this? <laughs> what are you doing?" Um, and Esther re- inquires Mordecai as to the reason. Um, for his uh, actions, um, and then through her eunuch, she learns of the terrible decree that had been put out. Uh, and this is when Mordecai tries to get Esther to seek help from the king. 
Right? And Esther's initial reply is that King Ahasuerus is very particular about his summons. And we know this because the author went through the trouble of setting this up. Right? Remember that uh, in, back in chapter 1, uh, we read of Queen Vashti's refusal to uh, answer the king's summon, to come to him when, he, when she was summoned by the king. And the king gets very, very mad. Right? It's not just, a, uh, oh, okay, you didn't feel like coming. That's fine. That's okay. I, I, you know, you might be having a bad day. No, it was, you're not the queen anymore, right? And I'm going to find a new queen that will answer my summons or that will do what I tell them to, right? So the king is very particular, and the author, you know, bothered to set that up. So, uh, so we have that effect here, right? He included that detail. He started with that point uh, of the story because it was significant, because now Esther is put in a position where she has to make a decision. Or she knows that the king is particular about his summons of who is present in his presence in the inner courts of the king. But she also has the responsibility now because she is in such a, a close proximity to power. And we'll talk about that too. And, and her influence and, and her ability to, to do something about this. She is put in a position where she has to make a decision. And Mordecai uh, mentions that. Um, another detail I put down, you know, remember even the virgin pageants that the king called, you know, from all over the kingdom, even they had to prepare for like a year. Remember that? They had to prepare like six months in, in uh, certain uh, perfumes and then six more months in, in some spices and then a whole year in just preparing to go into the king's presence. So the king does not play around with this, and Esther knows this. So rightfully, Esther is afraid and hesitant about Mordecai's call for help initially. Um, and I think that makes her very relatable, because sometimes we're called to do things that are not comfortable. Um, I don't know if we're ever called to do something that's, you know, uh, life-threatening in our society today. I hope that we're not ever called to do something in the name of God uh, that we have to lay down our lives. I hope that does not happen to any of us. But the Spirit is there, right? We have to make those sacrifices. Sometimes we have to do things that are uncomfortable, that are not down our alley, or sometimes maybe even uh, dangerous. I don't know what that kind of circumstance, what that situation may be. I'm sure Esther didn't foresee this happening when becoming a queen uh, of the Persian Empire. But now she is in this position, and she is being called to a responsibility. So that's where we get to verses 12 through 17. In verse 13, Mordecai says to Esther, or replies to Esther's hesitation with this, Do not think for yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. So Mordecai is calling to a sort of a personal responsibility, but not just of just human morals, but morals that they have as Jewish people derived from God, God's righteousness, and God's uh, expectation of each person. So each person has a responsibility to do what is righteous and just. Right? The standard of what is righteous and just um, shifts. I'm not saying you know God's justice changes or God's righteousness changes. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, depending on the position, right, 
we find ourselves in. We all are in different phases of life, different parts of life, different positions in society, uh, whether it be socioeconomic, uh, job, whatever it is, we are all in a unique position ourselves. No one person, no two people are alike. I mean, we're talk, we talk about that in terms of personality and, and who we are, our identity, but also in regards to where we are in society, in our communities, in our lives, um, who we come into contact with. All of these things vary, right? That's the independent, or sorry, that's the uh, independent variable, right? Now, God's righteousness, God's justice does not change, but what does change are our circumstances. And depending on our circumstances, sometimes we are called to different things. Right? There are different levels of responsibility. For example, any other Jew in this situation where you know all this has happened with Haman uh, uh, convincing the king to put out this decree to exterminate the Jews, any other Jews in these provinces who are just you know your your normal everyday person, uh, your everyday Joe, right, doing his job and, and going to work and whatever, those people did not have the influence and the power and the proximity to authority that Esther has. So. Obviously, that's not expected of them. But Esther was in that situation. Esther was put into that situation. We can't definitive, definitively say that God you know, moved the pieces physically to put her there. But nevertheless, what we can definitively know is that Esther, as the queen, is in that position. Now, as she mentioned, uh, there is a big hurdle of... Um, going into the king's presence without being summoned, right? And that can end up with, uh, she can end up with a death sentence uh, with that if the king sees fit that she does not live. But nevertheless, she is in that position of power, of influence. Her circumstance defined what was expected of her and what her responsibilities were in that moment. And by extension, I guess we can say what God expected of her in that moment in regards to righteousness, in regards to justice. So for us, what that means is, obviously, we are all in different parts of life. Uh, there are some things that you know I come into contact with, some things that I'm capable of, some things that... You know that are specific to my life that is not specific to your lives, right? You have things that are specific to your lives that are not applicable to my life. But what we are called to do is, in those individual circumstances of life, we are called to make the right decision with God in mind, right? And sometimes people in certain positions are called to do more. For example, Esther, in this situation, she is called, she is expected to lay down her life, potentially, for the saving of millions of people, of her people, right? But nevertheless, that is expected of her. It's not fair. Can we say that it's fair? Not really. Again, did Esther expect this to happen when she became a queen? Did Esther ask to be put into this position? No, she didn't. But what Mordecai says uh, has great wisdom, right? Uh, 
He says that if you don't step up and do this, right, the, the Jews will find help somewhere else, right? Meaning God will help the Jews, right? The God, God will, uh, uh, God's will will be done regardless of your decision here. Your decision here is not to save the Jews or not save the Jews. It's really, are you going to be a part of God's will in saving the Jews, or are you going to perish, right? Right. Are you going to be a part of God's will, or are you, be, or are you going to be just, you know, see destruction of your household? So, in times of tough decisions, uh, challenges in life, what we have to ask ourselves is not, am I going to do this for X, Y, and Z? You know, we, we like to plan, we like to calculate. That's just the human nature, right? We like to know what's coming up. We like to know what we're going to do to, to a certain effect. Right? But in those moments where we have to make those tough decisions, it's not really about, are we going to do this for ourselves or are we going to do this for other people? It's really about... Am I going to be a part of God's decision or God's will and God's plan, whatever that may be, right? Am I going to make the decisions that align with God's will or am I not? And if you go against God's will or if you deviate from it, well, I think Mordecai puts it well. Uh, I don't think God's going to like zap you with lightning or anything like that, right? But if you deviate away from God's will, then what can you say? Right? So, um, and this is really the, the meat of the message of Esther. Right? Um, Esther was put into a difficult situation. She did not ask for this. But how often do we ask for you know, these kinds of situations? Right? We don't. We never. We never do. We never ask for tough times. We never ask for difficult situations. And yet, oftentimes in our lives, we are put into those things. We are put into those circumstances. And we are still, in those moments, expected to make the right calls, expected to answer those challenges, not with our own righteousness, not with our own plans in mind, but with God's will. And that's the important part of the message of Esther is that God will accomplish what he wants to accomplish, right? And human history will keep going on right itself as it has always done. What really matters is whether or not we align ourselves with God in those moments of challenge, in those moments of difficulty, or are we just going to deviate from it? Um, and as Mordecai says, uh, see the destruction of ourselves. Uh, so, again, Mordecai does not explicitly mention God. He does not utter God's name in his charge to Esther when he says, uh, you have, you know, who knows, maybe you have been called into this position for such a time as this. He does not mention God in that charge. But he is vocalizing what God has standardized, right? throughout the history of the Israelites, history of the Hebrew people, all throughout Scripture. Right? And that is reflected very clearly, as Mordecai says, relief will arise elsewhere for the Jews, but you and your father's house will perish, in verse 14. And then again, he, he 
kind of hints at providence, the possibility of providence when he says, who knows, maybe you have come into the kingdom for such a time as this. So good news, Esther rises to the challenge, right? In verse 15 through 17, uh, Esther says, if I perish, I perish. Uh, she asked for a corporate fast. Again, this is a glimpse into her identity as a Jew and what the Jews did in times like this when they uh, uh, needed some um, great help, supernatural help, right? Something that they can't just make themselves or, or make for themselves or happen uh, by human planning, right? This is, they're in need, Right, and they make their need known oftentimes with prayer, fasting, things like that. We think back to Ezra chapter eight, right, when when Ezra called for a corporate fast uh, for protection as they journeyed to uh, back to uh, their homeland. David praying to their uh, praying for his child again, uh, Second Samuel chapter twelve, and then Ezra plans to go against the law for the preservation of her people. in my notes, I also mentioned uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 29, when the apostles, right, they were charged not to speak about Jesus, to preach the gospel, and yet they do so uh, regardless of what they've been told by the authorities. And they say, we got to obey God rather than men, right? And then in verse 41, they rejoiced when they suffered because they, they counted, they were happy that they were counted um, worthy to suffer in Christ's name. So that's the uh, chapter 4 of Esther. Um, I hope that you will give it a read again and, and see the, those details come to life and, and the message of Esther uh, that's contained in chapter 4. Thank you very much.